And welcome to episode 28 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This episode, I've labeled, I don't know if you saw the Sheena, I labeled it, The Darkness is Coming episode. <laughs> I did see that. It kind of reminded me of Game of Thrones a little bit. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. But, you know, uh, it really isn't a joke here because from about the first week-ish of June until the second week-ish of July, we don't really have dark skies. That's right. Yeah, the uh, perpetual twilight sets in, centered around the longest day of the year on June 21st. Mm. And uh, yeah, it, you know, during, during that time, we really don't gain an advantage or much of an advantage leaving light polluted skies. Um, it's no. just not worth it. No, it, it, really, it really isn't. If you happen to be somewhere, that's great. But uh, there, there actually is no, no real darkness uh, to be had of, of any, any length. Um, you know, if you do go out somewhere dark, you will, you will see significant sky brightening over the vast majority of the sky. And, and only to the very south are you going to have anything that resembles darkness. And then it, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty small swath of sky. And, uh, yeah, it's sort of, you're, you're able to read your star charts with the, the bright north uh, to your back. It's not, it's not bad. It's just, it's, it's a very short period of time, too, where there is any, anything like darkness. And it's not totally, totally dark much, uh, much at all there. So, Steve, yeah, and, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I'm not sure if we ever really explained why that's so important to us, too. Like, you know, the, the things that you can look at under uh, skies that aren't very dark are very limited. You know, it's the moon, it's the planets and some mm. double stars. If you really want to see detail or the full extent of galaxies, nebulas and star clusters, you need dark skies. If they're too bright, all of those features, uh, the details really get washed out. And, and in some cases you can't even observe, uh, you know, dimmer galaxies, nebula or clusters uh, because of how bright the sky is. So that's why we're always chasing dark skies and why, you know, this, this time right now around June 21st just doesn't appeal to us. Yeah. Um, I personally, I find it kind of neat. I, I didn't grow up here. Um, I do struggle with the going into this period of time. Um, because, uh, like, I don't know whether it's part of my natural evolution or what I, you know, my, my people's come from a very cloudy place, you know, like extremely cloudy. And I find when we're getting into like that May, June timeframe, my body clock rhythm goes haywire. And uh, I really struggle with actually getting proper, proper sleep. I end up at up at weird times, down at weird times and can't sleep when I want to sleep and feel like sleeping when I shouldn't want to be sleeping. Um, yeah. I find it really disruptive for both the, you know, I guess it's, it's from about the second week of May until about the second week of, of June. And then about now I start feeling pretty good again. So I feel like I'm getting back into the rhythm. We're starting to get some, some darkness and, uh, yeah, it's, it's really starting to feel good. But tonight, I was just, just looking at the calendar here where we were sitting here, and I didn't put in anything, but, and this probably won't go out in time, but tonight is the full moon. So there's always that too, you know. We're, we're not really observing uh, so much during the full moon. When the moon is full, um, you know, we're just, the sky's too bright still, eh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's fine for some backyard observing, but it's just not worth the effort to travel out of town. Mm. Speaking of backyard observing, uh, it was it was great to have a beer with you in my backyard yesterday. 
Yeah, yeah, it was. I got a little too much sun. I was, <laughs> I was a little pink on the forehead afterwards. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I should have offered you some some sunscreen. So, um, and I was saying how much I I enjoy the heat. You know, where I'm from, it's it's very cloudy, very foggy. We don't get uh, really nice warm days like this, and I I love them. I do. Uh, yes, I in fact ended up a little pink in in a few spots myself. Um, so. Don't think that I'm not there with you on that one. <laughs> yeah, but it is nice to feel the warmth. That's for oh, sure. man, let me tell you, like the summers here in Saskatchewan, I mean, if, you know, people don't know this, you know, like we live in Canada and most of Canada um, can have good weather where I'm from in Canada, maybe a little less so, um, you know, fall is nice in, in Eastern Canada. Um, but out here in uh, in Saskatchewan, those uh, May, June, July, August, September months are, they're just unbelievably beautiful. Um, you know, and it's funny, people always ask like, well, why did you move to Saskatchewan? And I kind of had heard this. I, I knew somebody, I worked with somebody who, who was from, uh, uh, Saskatoon and they had told me this and other people I know like Rick and, and others had told me how nice the summers were. And you kind of don't believe it. Cause you don't hear that. Like nobody ever says like, Oh, like, like Saskatchewan, that's the place to be in the summer. Like if you like summer, that's the place to go. And you'd think they were, you know, if you're from the other, other parts of Canada, you'd think that person was, was telling you uh, like a tale or something. But man, I can't believe how good the summers are here. They are gorgeous. Well, I think Estevan, Saskatchewan receives the most sunlight hours during a, a calendar year uh, than anywhere else in Canada, I believe. Mm. Yeah, and you know, I, I hear that there's places in Alberta that give it a run for for its money, but the one thing that I notice is this: it's sort of like Saskatchewan really is, and you know, we're not we're not being sponsored by the Saskatchewan uh, Tourism Board or anything like that, <laughs> but but um, yeah, it's one of those places nobody people just it's not on people's radar, especially for like a summer vacation, like. But I did know somebody who came here for a summer vacation when uh, that, that Corner Gas show was filmed and, and they said how amazing it was here in the summer. Um, but in Alberta, you can, you, they get more of that cold weather from the mountains in the summer. It, it can be cooler. I saw the other day it was snowing in places uh, high up, but not that high up, like in Jasper where I've gone and done uh, some astronomy events. It was snowing at some pretty low elevations and at Jasper Town proper, their daytime high was nine degrees while we were sitting at a very balmy 28 degrees and sunny. Oof. And then uh, over Manitoba, not to knock Manitoba, but uh, it, it, they get a lot more humidity than we get. We get some, but our, our humidity tends to be fleeting. So we get really good weather for astronomy here for four or five months a year. And it, it's just amazing. Um, it's just unfortunate we lose a month of that because of the their perpetual twilight. So we're really looking forward to getting out under some dark skies. But yesterday you you were over. Um, we had a good conversation. I see today we've, or maybe it was late last night, we've passed 1,600 downloads. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, that's really good to see. It's, um, you know, people are still listening. So I guess we must provide some level of entertainment. That's good. Yeah. And I'm not sure if I should mention this or not, but I think you've been looking at putting us some sort of uh, store up with some shirts and that you and I actually wanted to get some shirts just for fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, some shirts to wear when we're out observing and maybe some toques Uh, there, you know, we do have some costs to put this podcast out there. They're minimal, 
But, mm. you know, if we can also sell a couple t-shirts and put that money towards uh, just the, you know, recouping some of the costs that we'll have on an annual basis, that's great. Um, and yeah, it's just another fun thing to do. So, yeah. And I, I think it'd be fun. Like mostly I'm just like looking to buy a t-shirt myself. I think the logo is pretty cool that you made up and, uh, you know, so, so we're, we'll work that out. Um, we'll, we'll figure a way on, on the cost and then, and if we put it up anyway, we might as well make it available. But I think one thing that we're, we're looking at, maybe the reason why I'm mentioning it is, as we chatted on yesterday is we're kind of, we're kind of going to get some of the stuff ourselves. We're going to, we're going to buy it. And, uh, and then uh, make sure like we're happy with the quality in that um, kind of before we really put it out there too much. Um, yeah. Cause, cause I think, I think it's important that, that whatever we put out is, is good. But I think, I think you looked at a, a pretty reputable um, manufacturer distributor or whatever it is. So I, I'm excited. I think it'd be fun to get some shirts and then maybe as we start uh, looking into having uh, like guest um, people on the show, then we can just order some extra shirts or, or like order them and, and send them off to those people and that kind of stuff. And then we can just make it available to, to other people as well. I think it'd be pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's see. So you drop something off and you pick something up. What yeah, was, what did you drop off and what did you pick up? It seems like all of our meetings the last couple of months, it's, uh, you know, each one of us gets something new to take home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I dropped off that 80 millimeter uh, Mead telescope that I did a little surgery on a couple weeks ago or a week ago to try to fix the pinched optics. Yeah, I appreciate um, that. Yeah. yeah, as well as like just blackening those lens uh, edges. So yeah. I gave that back to you. Hopefully you can give that a, a star test and let me know what you think. I'm, I'm curious to see if you think it's improved at all. Yeah, um, I'm very excited about this as well. Um, and I uh, look forward to doing that. I think you said it still had a bit of a optical alignment or a collimation uh, challenge with it though. I, that's what I thought, um, but I'm, I'm no expert at reading star tests. Um, it, to me, it looked like a collimation issue, but I, you know, I'm curious to see if you can validate that or diagnose it as something else. Yeah, I think that is, that's almost par for the course. Um, especially where I, I, I did some pretty major surgery to the telescope before it went into your hands too. And so probably a combination of everything could have, could have moved things slightly off center. And, uh, I, I don't think it's, it's going to be that big a challenge. I think like all you do is pull the focuser out and then you can just put, you know, you can just put like tape in or like something in on one side, just kind of, kind of move it a bit and then see if that does the trick. And then if it seems to improve it, then you just kind of, you know, layer up on tape on on one side, but, but that tube, like, I think I told you, it was so far out of round when I replaced the focuser, like it was, you know, it was a, an oval. It looked like, you know, <laughs> the orbit of Pluto, right? I mean, this, it was, it was way out of round, right? So yeah. I'm guessing that maybe that's it. So if that is the case, then I might just be able to kind of, you know, fudge it. But as always, I've got another 80 millimeter identical to that uh, coming here sometime in July. So there's a chance, uh, and I got it for $30. So I figure I'll try that too, if I can't get this one to work. And then, you know, because I think, I think the optics on this are, this speed one are excellent for a $99 telescope. So pretty excited. Oh, absolutely. That. Yeah, yeah. They're fantastic for the price. Yeah. And mostly we're, we're looking to use it at, at very low power with some of our low power eyepieces and to use it in uh, suboptimal public outreach conditions once uh, we're back up and running next year with, uh, with doing our public outreach uh, and education uh, out in the national parks and that sort of thing. So that, uh, you know, if we do have 
like like these nights, you know, where you get the odd uh, little rain shower that comes through. Well, we don't like having the Takahashi's out uh, in those conditions. That always seems a little bit sketchy. And then, uh, you know, if we can just simply pull out one or two of these and use these for, for those times, I think, uh, you know, it'd be a lot better. So yeah, be, be pretty good. Just kind of floater scopes and knock arounds and whatever. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I left you with the 80 millimeter and then yes. I, I walked away with two items from you, from your yes. equipment collection. <laughs> yeah. I mean, between the two of us, like it's like, we've got, we've got a lot of weird and wacky gear. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what did you, what did you pick up from my, uh, from my hoard? So, uh, I picked up, a, uh, I guess it would be called a two inch visual back. Um, so my, Takahashi that I recently purchased, the 76 millimeter, uh, can only take or accept inch and a quarter accessories uh, because mm -hmm. that's the size of the visual back on it. Now, the focuser tube itself. Now, the, um, can I just hop in here? Because visual yeah, yeah. back yeah. is one of those things that I heard a lot about when I get into astronomy. And it sounds like it's this super complicated thing. This thing is basically just a ring. It looks like, I mean, this one that I lent you kind of looks like a small tire really is what it looks like. And it's got threads on one side and those threads thread into the focuser threads that are on the Takahashi focuser. And you can also get them that thread into uh, Schmidt cast screens and other uh, optical systems. And you just have to make sure that you buy the ones with, with the right threads. And that, that can be a little bit of a, of a, of a challenge to, to figure out some time, but I went through that process. So I got one, lend it to you. So you just plug in your diagonals to this. So your diagonal is the 90 degree part that, uh, that has a little mirror in it that angles the, the uh, light path. So it's easier to look through refractors or, or Schmidt cast screens or compound telescopes. So um, that's all this thing does is it just allows you to attach um, your regular accessories. But this one's slightly bigger, eh? So when it threads on it, it will allow you to, to use the two inch. Anyway, you take it from there. Yeah, yeah, good description. So I wanted to borrow this for a couple of reasons. One, I just wanted to see if uh, all of my eyepieces would still come to focus with this thing added onto the telescope. Mm -hmm. um, and check mark there. Um, my two inch eyepieces have no problem focusing. And uh, same with my, well, all my eyepieces will come to focus, which is great. Uh, the other thing that I was concerned about, and you had sent me a, a link on this, um, just as I was kind of in the process of purchasing the 76 millimeter, and that's that um, eyepieces with a field stop, I think greater than 33 millimeters, well, vignette, uh, which means like kind of the edge will darken because mm -hmm. the light path is too narrow to fully illuminate the field of view in the eyepiece. Yeah. And... Um, I was curious of, you know, how sensitive my eye is to that and if it's something I could tolerate. Yeah, what'd you find out? Well, I haven't done it under a dark sky yet, but I think it's probably more noticeable during a daytime sky. I, mm -hmm. I might be wrong on that. I think you're right, but, yeah. But I looked at uh, just blue sky. So the two eyepieces that I tested that, you know, will that, that are my maximum field of view or maximum field stops, uh, one is a 31 millimeter Nagler. Uh, and then the other one is a 41 millimeter panoptic, both made by Teleview, both providing wide field views. Um, the 41 millimeter, in fact, provides, I believe, the widest field of view one can achieve uh, with a two inch eyepiece. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah. So on a blue sky, I didn't notice a lot, to be honest. Like it yeah. was, 
there's a little bit of darkness uh, on the edge and I felt it was more pronounced in the Nagler, which is surprising because the field stop is wider um, mm -hmm. on the panoptic. But I don't know. I don't think it's going to bother me too much. I, I'll test it under a dark sky to see what I think. Um, but anyway, I'm pleased with the results and I think I'll be ordering one of those two inch visual backs cause, uh, everything looks okay. Yeah. And, and so, you know, this is one of those things where sometimes what you read on the internet, you have to take with a grain of salt. Uh, hopefully that's not news to everybody. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. you know, I had kind of read that and, uh, you know, I, I sort of paid the ultimate price for the experiment because I, I have a custom made. Uh, Starlight Instruments uh, Feather Touch Focuser, which which uh, which are pretty custom focusers, but I really had this one customized, as you know, mm -hmm. um, and and so that one I I have, and I know that it does does not vignette in any of these these Takahashi's. So I wanted to make 100% certain. So I love wide field observing. I just wanted to make sure it was 100% not compromised. In the end, it probably still is somewhat compromised in the same way as this, but you can't tell visually. And then after I got this all working with the 100 millimeter too, I already had this focuser, but I was able to get it working with 100 millimeter. And I kind of thought, well, it'd be nice to, to be able to run both of these telescopes. They're such great telescopes. I like to be able to run both the 60 and the 100 at the same time. And I looked at getting um, like a one and a quarter diagonal for the, uh, for the 60, but a good quality one was gonna run me more than getting one of these adapters. Cause these adapters, I could be wrong, but I think they're like around 45 or $50 or 40 or 50 euros or something. And yeah, I, I think in Canadian, it's closer to a hundred, you know, but still, uh, still yes. the cost so, of a uh, diagonal of good quality for sure. Yeah. I think a good quality diagonal is going to be maybe like 150. I'm kind of speaking at a turn here, but you know, really a good quality one and a quarter inch diagonal costs almost or about the same as a two inch. So you know, the reason why you get it is only if your telescope accepts one and a quarter. So anyway, I thought, well, you know what? And I did read some places where people had used them and kind of had rebutted that, you know, fact that the big netting is, is that much and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, since I love looking at the planets so much anyway, if I can just use my two inch gear with the 60 and I'm looking at planets from my deck or driveway or street or something, well, that that's like a less expensive alternative you know and as, as you know i'm looking at buying uh you know a parcel of land to do astronomy on so <laughs> trying try to save every dollar i can right now yeah for sure so i was very pleased with that um i'm excited to convert my 76 into a two-inch telescope um so maybe I'll, I'll close the chapter there on on that piece of gear and then the other one that i picked up from you is a very uh, highly desirable eyepiece mm -hmm. uh, for people that are, you know, seeking the utmost detail and contrast, particularly with planets. Um, and it is the Pentex XO 5.1 millimeter. Um, they were available probably in the early to mid 2000s, I believe. Yeah. And then there was a short production run on those things and now you can't you, you you can't find them brand new anymore uh they're really only available on the used market and prices just continually escalate uh you know every year because there's such a demand for these things and and people I just should have bought more <laughs> i i should have never have sold mine is what i should have done 
Well, I, I, you know, in retrospect now, I, I think it's good you sold yours because you've been able to get some, some other equipment and, and really neat stuff. And, uh, and, and in a way, the eyepiece is, I mean, it's a little bit lost on me because I need to wear glasses when I observe. And this is really an eyepiece where, where you can't wear glasses uh, when you observe. But um, for certain situations, I, I do like having this. And since I already own it, you know, it's probably going to be, I have this and one of the other rare ones, which is the 3.79 XP. Um, I just like having them. I think they're really neat. They're kind of collector's items. I'm not really a collector. Um, but for these, I have a bit of a soft spot for the Pentax stuff. Um, cause I have the big five inch, uh, Pentax Apocromat. So then when I'm using these, I'm, I'm Pentax through and through on the planets. And, and those images are, are really, really nice when I feel like using them. And, and I have, I, I get, I put lots of usage on them, but um, like I said uh, to you the other day, it's, it's been some time since I have used that one. So, you know, might as well lend it to you for a while, you know, when I want it back or whatever. And you've traded me off a five millimeter eyepiece anyway. So I feel like, I feel like I kind of owe you on that one. <laughs> yeah. So I'm really excited to uh, observe through that again. Uh, like when I, when I did own that eyepiece, I really did enjoy the views through it. Yeah. It's nice. Um, but since then, I've acquired two other five millimeter eyepieces. So uh, essentially, you know, I, I want to do a little bit of a comparison or an eyepiece shootout between these three five millimeters. So the, mm. the Pentax XO, uh, then recently acquired that TMB five millimeter super, mo super monocentric eyepiece, which is another one that's no longer made, but highly desirable. Some consider it to be the best five millimeter eyepiece in the world for mm -hmm. contrast and detail, that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then the third one is, uh, again, an eyepiece that's no longer made. And uh, this is a 0 0.965 inch eyepiece. Um, so it requires an adapter, uh, but it's a Nikon five millimeter orthoscopic eyepiece um, that uh, Thomas Back, this is in the early 2000s, had said that's the, the best planetary eyepiece he's ever looked through. Um, so, you know, between you and I, we have three of the, you know, rarer uh, and more desirable five millimeter eyepieces in the world. So uh, I think it, Will be kind of fun and, and maybe somewhat uh, beneficial to do a little bit of a comparison uh, between all three and just see how they compare. Yeah, I I, I think what we should do. I'm gonna you know I didn't I didn't mention this like we we aren't very heavily scripted on this podcast yes. to say the least. We we have notes that we go by just to make sure we stay a little bit on track, but we do go off track quite a bit. Um, but I'm thinking maybe you should do it. You run, you run your test, whatever you feel is sufficient for however long you feel is, is sufficient. And then maybe I can run a test and then, yeah. then we could do a podcast again, unscripted where we just kind of compare notes. Love it. Yeah. Let's do that for sure. I think that'd be really fun. You know, I mean, we'll probably mention a few things to each other sort of offline, but, but the one thing, and you, you know, I were talking quite a bit about this yesterday is that this kind of focuses down sort of pardon the pun um you know our our astronomy in a way like you know like the other night i wanted to, you know i i was tired and sort of bleary-eyed from a long day in front of the computer working and then i was like oh but i'm doing the podcast and i really i really should be out observing anyway and so i i went out and i i did some astronomy for just like half an hour or so but but it's really nice you know and then i have more valid things to talk about and i should be doing more astronomy or as much astronomy as as possible anyway so you know pretty much like pretty much any given clear night 
either you're out, I'm out, or we're both out now, I think since we started doing this. We're pretty close to it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Good segue. Yeah. We were both out this week. What did you see? Yeah, so I... <laughs> <laughs> this, yeah, that was like the next item. Sorry. Uh, I had a short session on the moon, Jupiter and Saturn. The seeing was horrible. <clears throat> so I was using the five millimeter you let me, um, which is not one of the, one of these super rare ones. It's, it's a rare one. I think it's a Nikon uh, five millimeter. Is it called a SW? S or yeah. N-A-V-S-W. N-A-V-S-W. Yeah. Um, and you kind of said that you hadn't liked it as much, I think, and I don't want to, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So what did you think of it? The, the, the optics are fantastic on that eyepiece. Uh, they're, they're crisp. The field of view is, you know, sharp to the edge. It's a really nice eyepiece. Um, what I found with my 76 millimeter telescope is that eye placement was really critical. If I just wasn't perfectly centered over the eyepiece, uh, it kind of blacked out on me. And that drives me nuts. Now, it, that eyepiece I've used in my 100 millimeter telescope and some other 60 millimeter telescopes, and it doesn't black out. So it might just be an issue with the 76. Um, I don't know. I have to probably run it through a few more paces. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, it could even be, I, I don't know. I, I have a few theories, but really they're, they're just theories. Um, but it is odd because your 76 is, an, is a 76 millimeter F7.5. And then my Takahashi, which is same, like we ordered them same day, I think, mm-hmm. or, or within 24 hours of each other. Anyway, um, same vintage, sort of similar production runs, and it's 100 millimeter F7.4. So honestly, Gene, I can't tell the difference between 7.4 and 7.5. Maybe you can, but, nope. um, <laughs> but, but when I use this eyepiece in my 100 millimeter F7.4, um, wow, it is fantastic i really like it um and i'm using a barlowed 10 millimeter I, i'm barlowing a, a 10 millimeter pentax xw for five millimeter and i gotta say this this really does outperform that by by quite a, a hefty margin so um yeah i'm i'm really impressed with it uh quite a bit i haven't tried the the five millimeter XW yet that was that was on my potential purchase list. I was actually considering getting the uh, Teleview Delight five millimeter, but uh, I don't know now. Um, I don't know. It's going to be a hard decision. I got my mount coming here in a, in a few weeks, so once I get that and see how the tracking is, then uh, you know, then then we'll see what kind of IBs uh, I go with. So yeah, it's pretty exciting. So the seeing was horrible, <laughs> like absolutely. It's part of that. Sorry, is part of that just because uh, Jupiter and Saturn were so low in the sky? I think so. I think yeah. so. But but the sky was really churned up. Like mm. that that night, that was the night. I think you, you and I talked about it before. Where um, you know sometimes like you're on the north uh, west of the city, I'm on the southeast of the city. So um, and it's far enough apart that sometimes you can be fairly clouded out or have very different conditions. Because the night before, you said you were out observing, and I was out for a walk, but the conditions weren't such that I could set up and observe. So our, our conditions can vary that much, which is, which is a little bit strange. This was another one of those nights and I was out and, and the sky was just roiled, like boiled up so, so bad. I could only use the seven millimeter. And when I was looking at Saturn through the seven millimeter, it gives me just over hundred power, 105 power, I think like it was actually moving 
like just from the atmosphere back and forth um pretty much an entire um like like diameter of like the disc and ring wow uh, like it was it was the sky was just like you know when you go to like the fun park or the science park or whatever and have like the big piece of metal that you you know whatever it is it, that's what the sky reminded me of or like a funhouse mirror that someone's bending or something it was it was brutal wow yeah you, you can't do much observing in conditions like that no so so the moon was up and the moon didn't look so bad the moon was much higher so it's going to be less impacted and I, and i'm only using 105 power i thought well i'm not i'm not a really big lunar observer anyway but it's really nice to look at i thought well on, um, I sit on the National Observing Committee uh, for the RISC, and I thought, oh, somebody was talking about observing the moon with, with glasses on or sunglasses on. So I thought, I- I'm going to go do this just just for fun. And it was really bright. I'd looked at it before, and I was like, oh wow, it's it's really really bright. So I'm going to put my sunglasses on. So I put my sunglasses on. I go out I'm looking at the moon. I, you know, I have a good view. I can't really tell you what I was looking at so much, but you know, it's fun just look at the moon and look at all those craters and. You know, you really feel like you're in a spaceship kind of kind of orbiting around. You can see a lot of craters through a 100 millimeter telescope. And I turned around and there was noctilucent clouds, these bright night shining clouds that we've talked about a few times. And they were so bright that I could see them with my sunglasses on at night. <laughs> yeah, we were treated to two nights of noctilucent this week that were really fantastic again. Um, July 1st, Canada Day, um, they were out that night. Uh, and then the next night, uh, July 2nd, they were out again. And uh, so I observed them both nights. In fact, um, on our Twitter feed, at uh, Actual Astronomy, um, I retweeted an Alan Dyer photo. Um, and basically his photo showed what kind of Western Canada would have saw that night yeah. uh, in terms of the noctilucent clouds. So check that out just so you kind of get an understanding of what we're talking about. Um, they, they were just so bright. And, and keep in mind, like if you do look at that photograph, that's probably around 1030 at night when that was taken. So like there's no sun. Because uh, when you look at the photo, you kind of like when I first saw noctilucent cloud photos, I thought, who cares? Like that's just a photo of clouds. Yeah. But when you add like, no, that's at night when there's no sun, it, you know, it, it becomes, you know, a far more amazing picture to think about. Yeah. Um, but what I, what I did uh, on July the 2nd when I was out, uh, I was looking at the moon uh, through my telescope and probably around 9, 9.30, I looked to the north and it was completely clear skies. There was not anything in the sky at all, no cloud. And I was wondering if we would get uh, some noctilucent clouds coming. Uh, so I stopped looking at the moon um, and I started to notice like, you know, sort of some brightening of the sky, like little patches of brightening. Um, and it reminded me a little bit of Aurora coming in when we've been out observing, you know, you'll see some faint hints of Aurora starting to appear and then they slowly brighten over time. And that's what happened on July the 2nd was the sky, you know, as it sort of darkened a little bit, these noctilucent clouds just like appeared out of nowhere. And, and yesterday when you and I were talking about it uh, in your backyard, I think you used the term, it was kind of ghostly. And, yeah. Very, um, very, they're very strange looking. Eh? Like they, you know, they don't look like usual clouds. And then the motion's kind of odd too. Like they don't typically go like, usually, usually when you're looking at clouds, at least here in the part of North America we live in, 
the clouds come from the west and go to the east in, in this more, more or less general direction. But these ones don't really quite do that. No, no, they travel the other direction, east to west. Um, yeah, so they were quite bright, quite interesting. Um, are you still there? Yeah, sorry. Oh, I just okay. I had to cough, so I <laughs> I paused it. You must have heard like me like blank out or something. I should, just, I should just cough. We're not supposed to do any editing or anything. It's like as soon as we start doing it, it becomes like distracting. Wait, something, some sort of editing is taking place here. <laughs> but no, I, just, I had to cough a bit. No, that's good. I just wanted to make sure we hadn't lost you. No. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so the Noctilucent were great. Um, I did look at the moon a couple times this last week. Um, yeah, seeing wasn't fantastic. I wasn't able to really push the magnification. But, you know, you mentioned um, kind of like spaceship-like views, you know, when you're, you know, seeing all this detail. On and, the moon, yeah. Yeah, on the moon. And what I really enjoy is like, a, you know, somewhat of a high, higher-powered eyepiece, like a five millimeter. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's wide field. And you really do, at least I feel like I kind of get that you know, spaceship portal feeling, you know, of what it might look like to be orbiting, you know, somewhat uh, over the moon mm-hmm. and, and just looking down and seeing all of that detail. Um, and I feel too, at least with this 76 tack, I, I get this sensation far more than any other telescope. Um, but when I hit, you know, that seven millimeter to five millimeter eyepiece range, it just takes on so much more of a three-dimensional view yeah. than anything else I've experienced uh, in any of my other telescopes. I don't know if you've had that sensation either. but Yeah, yeah, I know, I know for sure. And yeah, it's amazing what these small telescopes will show. Like I remember my, my first view of the moon through a telescope was, was at the uh, St. Mary's Observatory in Halifax. And they've got, a, I think it's like a 16-inch pure Cassegrain. And it was three floors above where I used to lay my head. So it was uh, kind of convenient. And it was just when I was kind of getting to have a bit of an interest in astronomy. So I knew a few people on my floor that were actually, I, I never have taken an astronomy course. I've, I've taught several, several dozen, uh, but I've never actually taken one. And I would go up there when they were doing their labs. And I remember going up and like looking at the moon and just being like blown away by, uh, by the detail you, you could see in, in the 16 uh, inch, and this is a huge rooftop observatory set up at, at a large university. And uh, well, I shouldn't say St. Mary's really isn't that large university. It's, it's a sizable university with, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12,000 students. Um, but yeah, then you get these little telescopes and really the view is pretty much just as good. <laughs> no, it's amazing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So you were able to get out and do some uh, solar observing uh, as well this week. Do you want to chat a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I was out on July 1st uh, on Canada Day that, uh, you know, it's a national holiday up here in Canada. Uh, and then on July the 2nd, I was back to working, uh, but working from home. So it was a clear day. I set the telescope up on the back patio. And then during my lunch break and uh, after work, I did a little observing. And man, July the 2nd was fantastic. Um, so I was using my Hydrogen Alpha telescope. Uh, I tweeted a picture out of that telescope. So, you, you know, people can get a sense of what that thing looks like. Yeah. And uh, again, people should not look at the sun unless you're using some sort of really specialized equipment that you, you know and have been trained on to use because uh, looking at the sun without proper training, without proper filtration will, will result in blindness, unfortunately. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we always have to give that warning. And Shane, you you are one of the best solar observers that I know. I, I'm not really that much of a solar observer. So I really <laughs> I really enjoy that you have the, this equipment and I've enjoyed looking looking through it on, on a few occasions. Yeah, yeah, it is fun. Um, so what I did, uh, there's, a, there's an amazing imager, solar imager that posts his images to cloudynights.com. So in our Twitter feed, I linked to photos that he captured that day. Um, I think I said, though, the first photo in the thread is, you know, what I saw. And I don't think I linked it quite correctly. If you scroll down to the third post in that thread, the first photo there is essentially what I saw through my little telescope, uh, but not quite as much surface detail. Um, but when I look at the sun, I'm, I'm most curious about the prominences. And prominences are around the edge of the, the solar disk. And they can take on any kind of shape. Um, and it's, it's, you know, some of the surface material being ejected from the sun or flaring up. Um, so they can sometimes be very dynamic. There's two classes. There's a quiescent and then there's active. The quiescent uh, prominences, they're kind of static. Um, and there is a really strong display of uh, some quiescent curtains that day. Um, uh, but then on the kind of almost on the other side of it, uh, there is like a, what's considered like an eruptive prominence, which mm. is active. So it, you know, it changes its appearance over, you know, the course of minutes or hours. Uh, so you, you can watch it evolve throughout the day. And it was just incredible. Again, the detail that I was able to see through this little 35 millimeter hydrogen alpha telescope. Um, it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I, I do enjoy watching things through a telescope that change in front of your eyes because most mm -hmm. of the stuff we look at doesn't change. It's mm -hmm. like that for <laughs> in our entire lives, you know, the Andromeda galaxy or, uh, you know, the great Orion nebula really will not change in our lifetime in no. terms of its appearance. Right. Uh, so it's kind of neat to see some of these dynamic objects like this. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I really think that, you know, if somebody is really interested in, in looking at the sun to, to seek out other amateurs and take, take a look through one of these telescopes because like they really show you, show you the sun. Um, and it's, I think it's worth, there, there, there's a bit of a cost uh, uh, to, to entering uh, this type of, of observing, but uh, yeah, it seems worth it to me. So, and you you were mentioning in the notes here, you know, I'm just looking at the, the last note here that there's uh, this comet Neowise has survived perihelion and it's getting brighter. Now, is this the one that's in the Southern hemisphere that is coming to the North or am I getting that mixed up? Yeah, yeah, you're, 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 you're right. Um, we talked about it, I think, at our, in our July Outlook podcast, mm -hmm. um, that there was this comet, uh, it's Neowise C2020F3. Um, people were hopeful that this thing could brighten and become a, a fairly bright com comet. However, it hadn't gone through perihelion yet. So perihelion is when the comet has its closest approach to the sun. And Anybody that's followed comets in the past will know that that's a very dangerous time for the comet. And most of them don't actually survive perihelion. They either get sucked into the sun and completely disappear, or because of all of the heat and gravity associated, they just burst apart and, you know, become very insignificant, uh, you know, comets, I guess, or objects at that point. Oh, um, just, you know, one thing I was thinking of just, just, you know, and I, I didn't know this was in, in the thing today, but, um, 
do you ever watch them on the Soho? Is Soho still yeah. operating? Okay, so Soho is this, um, it's an observatory. It's a satellite um, that's between, I, I think it's actually about the, about the halfway distance between the sun and the earth, but is, it's not quite between the sun and the earth. It's sort of an, on a different orbit, maybe the other side or, or 90 degrees to our orbit or something. But anyway, so it actually watches the sun um, but you can actually see the comets as, as they round it, uh, just on your computer by going to like the, I think it's just, if you type in NASA Soho comet, uh, you should, you should get to the, uh, the right page there for, for doing that. So did you take a look and see if this one was on there? No, no, I didn't. Uh, I guess I should have. I didn't even think of that actually. Um, uh, yeah. I'm just thinking of it now. So yeah, yeah, that's, yeah that uh, might be neat to check out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it survived perihelion and there's been a number of observations, uh, over the last couple of days and, uh, for, well, for just about anybody, I think you have to see it early in the morning. Um, but I'm reading a report, uh, from somebody on cloudy nights, um, mm -hmm. estimated the magnitude to be about 2.6. That's pretty bright. It's pretty bright. Um, but a lot of people are saying it's, it's a little tricky to find and, and you probably need binoculars. So we're about... Um, is it right now? Uh, let's take a look. Because um, it's probably coming up into into like uh, sort of a brighter sky. Well, here it, the sky is brighter right now anyway, but as we get on for a couple of weeks, our sky will get dark. So hopefully as it, as our sky is darkening, hopefully it's going to be rising up into into that sky. But when it's hugging the horizon, then yeah, you're right. It will be uh, much easier to to find using, uh, using something like a, like a little handheld, you know, seven by 35 or seven by 50 or eight by 40 uh, binoculars like the ones that we usually recommend. So any luck finding it there, Shane? Mm, just looking it up. Um, people are saying that the, uh, the nucleus, so that's kind of the ball of the comet. Yeah. The main part. Um, yeah. yeah. The main part is, is stellar looking, meaning it, it looks like a, a bit of a star, mm -hmm. uh, but apparently the tail is quite bright. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's been some sketches as well, uh, on cloudy nights, uh, that show like a dual tail, um, almost two equal tails kind of coming off of it. Uh, here we go. Sorry. I'm just, uh, no worries. I'm just the like trying to look here. while they hear me type in, I'm like finder chart constellation Ariga. Oh, okay. All right. So it's, it's in the North. So for us, we're, we're going to be pretty challenged, uh, by that here. Yeah, I'm just taking a look here as well. I guess on Sky and Telescope, um, it says skyandtelescope.org. Did they change their URL? I guess they must have. Um, oh, and they actually have a picture from the SOHO satellite. Uh, so if you go to skyandtelescope.com and go into their astronomy news, you can actually see it there. And they have the picture of it going by the sun. And that's pretty cool. And then down below, yeah, you can see it sort of coming out and going into links. Looks like it's heading over in towards, uh, not quite Camel the Partilus, but uh, in that general region of the sky. So let's see, there's July and coming into August, it's gonna be into the bottom of, of Ursa Major. So probably, yeah, coming up here over, you know, the next couple of weeks. I mean, that should be pretty good during the dark sky moon period because I see it's gonna be in links on about the 15th. Uh, looks like it'd be well-placed. So what's what's the prognosis for how bright it would be at that point in time or do you know 
Uh, what is this distance? I'm just looking for an estimated magnitude. Oh, I'm seeing it's estimated magnitude today is 0.6 followed by 0.8 on the seventh. So it could fade quick. Yeah, I'm not seeing what the other ones. Yeah, it looks are. like max magnitude is uh, probably tomorrow. Yeah. July 6th. Yeah, full moon uh, here. So. Yeah, and then, but not dropping off significantly. Like, you know, okay. by the time new moon, it, it still is probably around a magnitude five or mm -hmm. six, which, you know, six is getting to be, uh, you know, a bit dimmer and you'll, you'll probably want some optical aid for sure. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, still at magnitude six, uh, a telescope or binoculars will show it off quite nicely. Mm, yeah, and like I'm saying, skyandtelescope.org uh, has uh, under their astronomy news section some, some pretty good images and some pretty good finder charts. They've got another comet down there as well as some links to Noctilus and Clouds. So all on that page. Yeah, good work, Sky and Telescope. Really yeah, like Sky and Telescope. That's yeah. great. And, and maybe the, the last thing I'll say about this comet is uh, they're highly unpredictable. So uh, nobody really knows what will happen, how bright they will get, how the tail will evolve. So, um, you know, take as many observations of this as you can. Uh, and, and the neat thing too, is you can kind of watch it evolve over the course of a few evenings or a couple of weeks here. Yeah. I think David Levy, famous uh, Canadian comet discoverer who lives in Arizona, um, has said it best. And that's that uh, comets are like cats in that they both have tails and do whatever they want, you know, or something, something to that effect. I'm, I'm probably misquoting him, but uh I think more or less that that's how he's how he's phrased it. So yeah, excellent. Well, anything else to to add on this episode twenty eight of the Actual Astronomy Podcast? No, sir. That is all I have. All right. How can people get in touch with us if they so choose or wish to uh, reach out and and congratulate us on such a great episode? As one person recently did, really really appreciate that. That's really awesome. Um, or like maybe people have questions, or certainly if people have criticisms as well. We're, we're happy to, to receive all that too. So how can they get in touch with us? You can find us on Twitter. We are at Actual Astronomy. Or you can email us. We are actualastronomy at gmail.com. All right. Sounds good. Well, thanks so much, Shane. We'll talk to you soon. Yep. Thank you. All right. Bye.